I dip my cup of soup back from a gurgling, crackling cauldron in some train yard. My beard a roughening coal pile and a dirty hat pulled low across my face. Through cupped hands round the tin can, I pretend to hold you to my breast and find that you're awaiting from the back roads by the rivers of my memories, ever smiling, ever gentle on my mind. This is Our American Stories, and for the hour, Glenn Campbell's story. We love taking deep dives on artists and musicians' lives and entrepreneurs. And that's everything from Fred Smith, who founded FedEx, to Kurt Cobain, who founded a band called Nirvana. And these are musical entrepreneurs. I mean, these are business guys who are artists and art and commerce merge, and we have a thing called popular music and record sales. And we love to dive deep on big personalities. Love Glenn Campbell, Not that's not the point. Anybody who wins 10 Grammys, we've got to talk about. He sold 45 million records. He starred in True Grit, for goodness sake, a movie classic. He hosted his own TV show, The Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour. And let me tell you, you talk to any musician, and they'll say one of the greatest guitarists of all time. Played in a little band called The Wrecking Crew, which played for everybody. Hit records across every musical idiom. That and so much more on this hour. And as always, these lives, well, they start out humbly. Glenn was born in 1936, raised near a one-horse town called Delight, Arkansas. We were poor. Uh, you know, we, we were, my dad was a sharecropper, farmer. We didn't have electricity. I was raised back on the farm. You know, you pick the cotton and you get the cows in and milk them. You, you know, you slaughter the animals to eat. We cooked the corn and had it ground. You know, we were, it was, it was, we were poor. Who was it, Roger Miller or somebody said they were so poor their folks couldn't afford laxatives. We sang and played. My Ooh. parents were very musical. They taught me some wonderful old songs like... Silver Haired Daddy of Mine and You Are My Sunshine and those songs from the 30s when the, they were singing, you know. And there's not a lot of woe is me with this poverty either. That's what's interesting. At four years old, Glenn Campbell's uncle gave him a $5 Sears guitar and taught him the basics. It wasn't long before he was playing in front of live audiences. Well, there was a guitar and a mandolin. And I first took up the mandolin because I could get my hand around the neck, you know, probably the age of five, maybe four, five, six, somewhere along in there. But then I later, I stuck with the guitar because it was easier to play. I think it was at the Hope Forest Festival. It was in, in Prescott. It was in Prescott, Arkansas, Forest Festival. In fact, I did an album called I Remember Hank Williams, and uh, the, the photo on the album was taken with my uncle and I. I must have been 12 at the time or something like that. I mean, for a big audience. Now, we had musicals back at Grandpa Campbell's house, you know, probably once a month on a Saturday night. And there would be a couple of hundred people there maybe at a time, you know, just saying and do something. But that was the first time I played where we uh, actually got, I think we got five bucks a piece for playing that gig. And he never forgot it. Campbell never received any formal training. He dropped out of high school at 14 before he landed his first professional gig. When I went to New Mexico, I was, I was about, maybe I just turned uh, 15 and I went, to, I went out with some friends of moms and dads. They let me go out for the summer. And it was a guy there named Texas Slim. And we played a place called Coon Holler in Regina, New Mexico. We played on Friday and Saturday night at a barn dance. It was two guitars and a fiddle. And I did the, we had a rhythm guitar player, and I played lead and sang the songs. And Texas Slim would play fiddle and sing. 
and they we, they played this dance music. And the the hall where they danced was separate from the bar. You had to go out of the one building and then go into this little other place where they sold the whiskey and stuff. And I couldn't go in there, but I could go in the dance hall. And that was my first really professional gig. I think we got uh, maybe seven eight dollars a night for doing that. And he keeps getting paid more and more. For his next break, young Glenn realized that he had a relative in another state who just happened to have his own radio show. My uncle had a band in Albuquerque. A guy that was married to my dad's sister, his name was Dick Bill. He had a band called the Sandia Mountain Boys. And they were on KOB radio five days a week with a noonday roundup. I stopped off and played some for him and sang just, you know, maybe a month and a half to two months later, he called Texas and wanted to know if mom and dad would let me come out and join his band. And that's... That was really big time then. I'm talking 80 bucks a week, you know. <laughs> well, I quit Michael's band after about four years. The radio show had gone, so that was a real incentive for me to be on radio, you know. And uh, we played all over, you know, New Mexico, Eastern Arizona, West Texas, Southern Colorado, because that's where the radio station would reach. But my next gig, I moved it up to about, I was making about 115 a week at a place called the Hitchin Post in Albuquerque for a couple of years. Got that hankering, as they say back home, to go west, you know. Go west, young man. And west he went, one thing that some people might not know about Glenn, he was a world-class studio musician. Campbell found a daytime job at publishing company American Music in L.A., writing songs and recording demos for other artists. Because of these demos, Campbell soon was in demand as a session player and became part of a group of studio musicians later known as the Wrecking Crew. I was making so much money doing studio work, I didn't want to go through that routine of going out and playing gigs for, you know, a hundred a night, you could make that doing a session. And I went out and did some club gigs, but I couldn't, I couldn't make as much doing that as I could doing studio work. And that's why I just said, you know, I don't, I don't really care to be an artist. I'm, I really enjoy hanging around, I was hanging around the greatest musicians in the world. And that's where you learn how to play, you know, and we got to work with so many different people, you know. Nat King Cole, boy, what a... For me, I mean, that was such a thrill because I'd rather been doing that and going out and playing some joint, you know, or trying to go out and, you know, become an artist and get on the road by yourself. I didn't really want to do that. And what a musician he was. He played with the Beach Boys, Mo Haggard, did so many Phil Spector singles and songs, that wall of sound that Phil Spector created, and of course, Frank Sinatra. And so you don't get much more of a musical repertoire than that. And when we come back, We're going to learn more about Glenn Campbell, his partnership with the great Jimmy Webb, his collaboration with a great songwriter. We're going to learn more about his battle with drugs and alcohol. Glenn Campbell's life story. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages.
By the time I get to Phoenix She'll be rising She'll find the note I left hanging On her door She'll laugh when she reads the part That says I'm leaving Cause I've left that girl So many times before By the time I make Albuquerque She'll be working And you're listening to Glenn Campbell with his second big hit and the beginning of the biggest collaboration of his life. He had some failed marriages. Ultimately, he got that right, too, and we'll get to that. But the most important marriage of his life was with a songwriter named Jimmy Webb, and Jimmy wrote that song. And most of the great hits that Glenn sang, and there are very few combinations like this. Bernie Taupin and Elton John, my goodness, you couldn't imagine... Bernie Taupin's lyrics being with anybody but Elton John's music. Lerner and Lowe, Rodgers and Hammerstein. And I think Webb and Campbell are right in there. And if it's one thing we've learned about music and all the time we've done our stories, it's a deeply collaborative, collaborative medium between musicians and writers. And so let's hear from Jimmy Webb talking about where he gets his inspiration for songwriting. Turns out from the same place Glenn got his singing inspiration. In a way, I guess you could say it was a form of show business. My dad was an evangelist uh, in the summers, and I'd, went, I'd go on the road with my dad and play piano for my dad. And so in, in, from that aspect of it, of getting in front of the public and playing the piano and all that, all of it came out of church. All of it. I mean, it couldn't have come from anywhere else. Um, in, in terms of, of, of the, the lyric content or the... Um, the poetic content of the songs I write. I guess I was heavily influenced by country music, by Hank Williams and uh, all the fine country writers that my dad liked to listen to. We could, we'd, we'd, ha- we'd reach for the radio to change it off of a country station, and he'd, you know, stab us in the back of the hand with a fork, you know? Because <laughs> just could not listen to Elvis Presley in my dad's car. So I was really influenced by country. And, of course, that's where Glenn made his living in the end. Here's Jimmy Webb with Glenn Campbell in a session they did together. Webb tells us about the song and writing Wichita Lineman before we then hear Glenn Campbell perform the song. When I wrote Wichita Lineman, I was doing a follow-up for one of the only times in my life as a songwriter. Glenn had called me and said, I need a follow-up for by the time I get to Phoenix. Will you write one? And... It's one of the few times in my life when I was successful in doing that because a lot of times I've written follow-ups that either weren't done or if they were done, maybe they didn't eventually turn out to be the single or whatever. But maybe three times in my life I've written a follow-up that actually followed, that did what it was supposed to. It followed the record uh, and became a hit and got on the radio and that was one of them. I am a lineman for the county And I drive the main road 
Galveston was another song that Jimmy Webb wrote for Glenn Campbell. When Glenn first recorded Galveston, he kind of did it as a, in a medium march. It was like, it was a little faster than I had intended it for it to be. But then I wasn't complaining either because it was top ten. And you all know the up-tempo version. Here's Glenn and Jimmy in this studio talking about where this song came from before we then hear Glenn Campbell perform the slower version of Galveston. As the years have gone by, the tempo seems to have settled back, you know, to where it was originally meant to be. And it's almost as though songs want songs know where, where they want to be sung. They know how fast they want to be sung. And if you try to sing them any faster, they, they creak and they protest and they complain until finally you get them back to where, where they should, should have been maybe in the beginning. Galveston, oh Galveston I still hear your sea winds blowing And I still see 
She was 21 when I scoured the stream. Galveston, oh Galveston, I still hear your sea waves crashing while I watch the cannons flashing. I clean my gun. Then dream of Galveston. And when we come back, more on the life of Glenn Campbell. By the way, Galveston, if you listen carefully, it's a Vietnam soldier stuck overseas, dreaming about the town he's from and the girl he left behind. And when we come back, more on the life of Glenn Campbell, his story, Jimmy Webb's story, here on Our American Stories. On the beach where we used to This is Our American Story. We continue our celebration of the life of Glenn Campbell. Here he is there in this song live in South Dakota playing classical gas. What a guitarist Glenn Campbell was. It's no secret that Glenn had an appetite for drugs and alcohol. This was something he would struggle with on and off through his entire life. I was just a total alcoholic, you know, and I was dabbing in cocaine and I couldn't smoke marijuana. And thank God I couldn't stick a needle in me. So it was, it was cocaine was my choice of, of drug at that time. Uh, but it wasn't no, so much the, the drugs, it was the alcohol. 
I, I, I got, you know, if I'd come, to, when I come to England, you know, I'd, when I played Scotland, I'd go by teachers of the factory up there and stock up, you know. <laughs> and, but it was, uh, and then I got into the Glen Levitt, that's even stronger, you know. But it would, I would sit, I could drink a, I'd drink a fifth of scotch a day probably sometimes. I laid, I remember laying for like six hours, just totally praying, you know, God, get me out of this and I won't do this anymore. And you know what? I didn't do that drug anymore after that, but I still kept the whiskey, I kept on drinking the whiskey. And finally, I was delivered from that only 11 years ago. And it was his Christian faith that helped him stay away from drugs and alcohol. It was always his foundation. I went to church when I was a child. Dad mom took all the kids to church, and they, I remember the first Bible line that I, verse that I learned was Matthew 5.17. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. It's the basics of it. I didn't come to destroy the law of the prophets, what Jesus said. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. Well, that's always stuck with me, and it's always made me want to go back and read the prophets because Christ had to tell the Pharisees and the Sadducees that he didn't come to destroy them, you know, but they didn't. They obviously, obviously hadn't read the, the scriptures because 80% of the prophecies in the Old Testament have come to pass, including the nation of Israel being reborn again. In late 2010, Glenn Campbell was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but Glenn wouldn't leave this world without a fight. He'd conquered his drug addiction but this was the biggest of his life. And rather than lay down and die, he did the one thing he could. He went on tour. In the documentary about the end of his life, Glenn Campbell, I'll Be Me, we follow Glenn along with his friends and family on that final tour. It's a remarkable film that shows the brutal and devastating effects that Alzheimer's has on the human mind, but it also shows an incredible look into the life of a talented musician living out his final days on stage. We join Glenn Campbell and his wife at the doctor's office for one of his regular exams. What month do you think this is? I, what is it? I don't know, I just go look. Okay, what, what time of the year? Are we in winter, spring, summer, or fall? I don't worry about those don't things. Don't worry about that. I don't worry about them. All right, do you know the year? What year oh, is that? 1870, something like that. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> No, I don't pay any attention to those things. Okay. But when it's needed, I take care of that. How old are you now? I don't know. How old am I? And listening to Glenn handle this is pretty remarkable because clearly he has no idea. Hearing someone in that condition can be upsetting even to a total stranger, let alone his family, that had to watch him slip away. But rather than putting him in a nursing home or in a hospice, Glenn's family and friends made sure he was still able to perform on stage. He is unable to give you the day, year, or date of his birth, but he could still sing, and he could still play guitar. Here's one of those guitar solos from his final tour. It's great guitar picking, and remarkable considering the state of his mental condition at the time of this recording. I'll play one now.
not bad picking from anybody, any human being, let alone someone with Alzheimer's. When Glenn Campbell passed, everyone from country music came out to pay tribute. Dolly Parton, Charlie Daniels, Vince Gill, you name them. They were giving their memories, giving their condolences. But it wasn't just country music fans that mourned the loss of Glenn Campbell. Here's legendary rock star Alice Cooper, a friend, a fellow Christian, and fellow golfer. I know Glenn and I are the same faith. We're both Christian, and uh, I know where he is now. And I know that he's in a perfect place. Um, Glenn was one of the most unique guys. You know, you, you think of Glenn country, Alice Cooper rock and roll. We couldn't have been closer. He was one of the premier guitar players in, in both rock and uh, country. And a lot of people don't know this, but I mean, when the respect he had in the rock and roll world, people like Eddie Van Halen one time, you know, said, can you get me a guitar lesson with Glenn? Now most rockers would go, what? That's the kind of guitar player he was. He was considered one of the five best guitar players out there. Um, and it's not, but he was the most unique guy. Uh, I played a lot of golf with Glenn, had a lot of laughs with him. Uh, and when I heard this happening, I was almost hoping that he would go sooner because I know that it's a long, slow, cruel death. When he was asked how he wanted to be remembered, this is what Glenn Campbell had to say. Just for what I am, that's, you know, it's, I'm Glenn Campbell and I believe in God and I believe in other people like the way you want to be treated and to help others less fortunate. Music is really incredible, you know, it's just it's something you just, it's a gift. And I try to do that. And, uh, wow. I'm thankful. And we're thankful, too. It was a gift, and you treated the gift well, Glenn. And what a life story. We love telling these stories here on Our American Stories. And you can go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to all we do. Glenn Campbell... Well, his music made the world a better place. His faith saved him from his addiction. A loving wife helped him shepherd a tough struggle with Alzheimer's. With a final tour, what a family to bring Dad out on a tour to end things. And so we're going to end things with a song that Glenn Campbell recorded, spiritual record, and some of his favorite gospel songs. And this is our favorite on the show. And the song is called A Better Place. This is Our American Stories. I've tried and I have failed, Lord. I've won and I have lost. I've lived and I have loved, Lord. Sometimes at such a cost. One thing I know The world's been good to me A better place Awaits you'll see Some days I'm so confused, Lord gets in my way 
ones I love, Lord More and more each day One thing I know The world's been good to me A better place Await you'll see A better place Now, Grover Cleveland, you know, Warren Harding, it's just ridiculous. I mean, no, it's I, absurd. No, I mean, you got guys like Chester Allen Arthur, and you have, uh, there's just certain guys that I'm not going to celebrate their birthday. I don't care if they're presidents, or I'm not going to celebrate the holiday. Taft. Taft, right. That's right. Throw in Taft. Taft is two men. Now, there's only two guys who should get it, and we got to be fair. Lincoln and Washington, and that's it. Yeah. Nobody, and they should have their own taste. They should have their own days. Why do you have to lump those guys together and put a President's Day between their births, which is what happened with President's Day? They just wanted right. to cram two guys into one day wrong. And there's no reason the mail shouldn't come on President's Day either. None. Preposterous. clothes. Come on. Give me a break. So we're, we're covered there. And, you know, it's just what happens here at Our American Story. Sometimes we go off on a tangent. Hengler takes us there. And then we've got another segment from the crew. And this is, well, it comes from... Stan, basically, because Stan is, well, he's always thinking about deep things and intricate things and really complicated things and things that are really beyond us. And a little while ago, our colleague Alex Cortez was picking up our, our new field correspondent, and that's Stan from the airport. And the guys got into talking about, of all things, child car seats, which, you know, you know, whatever you want to talk about, I don't know how it got there and Things must have been a little slow in the car. <laughs> but, uh, and it's, I mean, this is pathetic. But Stan was wondering why Alex has child safety seats in his car, but doesn't take them with him when he flies with his two little girls. That's actually a pretty good question, because I never do either. I, but we, I was forced to have child care seats, basically, by the government. A question <laughs> and answer that will be a feature of Stan's first of what we hope will be a reoccurring series, depending on how we do tonight, called Ever Wonder Why?, And so here we go. Let's take it away, Stan. Everywhere we look, there are stories about the importance of child car seats, especially for infants younger than two. How to choose them, how to install them, and here's a bit from the Today Show about how even the weather outside makes a difference. We're talking about putting your kids in car seats while wearing their winter jackets. You think you're strapping them in, keeping them safe, but you're really setting them up for possible danger. Okay. So if we give this much attention to child seats in cars and how to properly use them, then why not in airplanes? I don't know about you, but I've seen far more infants on planes held by their parents than strapped into seats. Is that okay? I mean, airplanes go way faster than cars, right? Well, we're certainly not the first to wonder. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly. The existing policy is that a child under two can travel domestically with a parent for free by sitting in the adult's lap. Now, once the kids are over two, parents are required to buy each child a seat of their own. 
Some disagree with this policy. The woman who used to lead the NTSB doesn't think that's safe. Deborah Hersman is now the president of and CEO of the National Safety Council, a nonprofit group. Deborah, um, I mean, it's uh, just the way families fly, you know, with a babe in arms in their arms. What's wrong with that? You know, I think it's something that a lot of people have grown accustomed to, but it's just simply not safe. We wouldn't think about holding our infants in our arms in a car at 50 miles an hour. Why would we want to do it at 250 miles an hour in an airplane? Oh, won't somebody please think of the children? In 2001, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommended a mandatory federal requirement for using child restraints on aircraft. In practical terms, they wanted the Federal Aviation Administration to make parents buy extra tickets so that each child can fly in a safety seat. Taken at face value, this seems to make perfectly good sense. If there is extreme turbulence, or God forbid a plane crash, an infant would be relatively safer strapped into a safety seat than held in their parents' arms. I believe I can fly. Simple. Case closed. Pushed the mandate through yesterday. Right? Well, as we've seen in all of our stories about risk, it's rarely ever that simple. One group of researchers estimated that mandating child seats in airplanes could prevent 0.4 child air crash deaths per year in the United States. Based on that, here's Dr. Aaron Carroll, a pediatrician, educator, and parent walking us through the map. Let's also stipulate that the average cost of the policy will be about $200 for a seat for each small child flying. Sound okay? Under these simple and reasonable assumptions, the cost per each child death prevented would be $1.3 billion. If you want to be precise, it was calculated to be $1,283,594,063. For comparison, that's about 33,000 times more per life you're saved than the policies that mandate restraints in cars. It's also pretty much the most expensive injury prevention policy imaginable. But that's just the beginning of the story. The Department of Transportation reports that for the average family traveling with infants, mandating safety seats would raise their flying cost by 45%, because mom and dad would have to buy the extra seats for one, two, three, or more kids. Especially for young families, that's an awful lot of money, and many won't be able to afford it. An obvious, if sad alternative, is just to miss out on vacations or family celebrations. But of course, there is another choice. Drive. Clearly, our roads are safe enough that just about all of us use them daily without thinking twice. But could forcing flyers to drive long distances end up being a very deadly proposition? According to the same group of researchers, if the mandate caused as few as 5% of families to drive instead of fly, the net result might no longer be saving four-tenths of a child per year, but actually increasing the number of children killed while traveling. And that's just the kids. You add in the adult drivers, the passengers, the other folks on the road, the occasional deer, and this trip takes a really tragic turn really quickly. The Federal Aviation Administration predicts that if child seats were mandated, the diversion of families onto the roads 
could result in 72 additional transportation fatalities over 10 years in hope of achieving one saved life from airplane restraints. These are of course all estimates, and the danger increases along with average trip length, because the longer the trip, the more time families are spending driving on the roads instead of flying in the air. As an aside, researching and estimating the dangers of air travel runs into an interesting problem. Air travel is too safe to make strong predictions. You see, there are relatively so few air travel fatalities, and so few of those are infants, that we cannot draw very strong conclusions at all from such a tiny sample set. So, if we can't estimate that well, let's consider air travel's historical record. Between 1980 and 2011, there were three air carrier accidents in which child seats could have prevented infant fatalities. One in 1987, one in 1989, one in 1994. Those are tragedies, no doubt, but it's still three over 30 years. This may be another example of us paying more attention to what is the most dramatic instead of what is the most dangerous. You know, when we hear about a plane crash, oh gosh, we're just imagining shooting sparks, fireballs, hundreds of casualties. How can we not be scared of something like that? Especially if it's looping over and over and over on every TV channel. Okay, folks, show's over. Nothing to see here. Show's, oh my God, a horrible plane crash. Hey, everybody, get a load of this flaming wreckage. Come on, crowd around. But... Realistically, the leading causes of infant death in America mostly involve congenital abnormalities and complications from premature or otherwise risky births. We tragically lose about 23,000 infants a year from all causes. Even if we did mandate child seats on planes and we didn't bill the traveling families a single extra penny, the real cost of doing this will still be about $1.3 billion per potential life saved. Could we take that amount of resources and find ways to save more children in situations far more common and far more dangerous than taking a flight? As with all of our discussions of risk, the question here isn't if we want to protect people. Of course we do. But how can we do that if we're not fully exploring our choices? What are the costs we pay to get the benefits that we want? And what might be the unintended consequences? Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Stan Dye. Hey, great job, Stan. That was, that was informative and smart, and I'm glad you're looking into it. <laughs> and if you have a question that's gnawed at you, and I'm telling you, everybody's wondered why something crazy. Yeah, I got one. What? <laughs> why are motorcycle cops able to give people a ticket for not wearing their seatbelt? It makes no sense! It's not about safety, it's about revenue. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, a motorcycle... Just think about that. <laughs> you know what's ridiculous is the child, child car seats are getting bigger and bigger every year, so when it used to be a five-year-old needed a big car seat, now it's a six-year-old needing a big car seat. Next year, it's going to be a 12-year-old needing a big car seat. In about 10 years, we're all going to have to be wearing, sitting in car seats. <laughs> that could be. That could be, Jesse. <laughs> and that's what we get. We want you, if you have an ever wonder why question that Stan will run down and he will run it down. I mean, you just heard proof. He'll talk to whoever he needs to talk to and he'll get the answers, but particularly the statistical answers as it relates to risk. Ever wonder why? Call 844-627-8255. Leave your question. It's up to Stan to find the answer. And if he doesn't, well, my goodness, if you can stump Stan... 
We got a prize for you of some kind. Because <laughs> hey, I, I still have yeah. a stump stand. <laughs> this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to Our American Network and listen to all of the things our staff does here and our team does, particularly our This Days in History. The John D. Rockefeller is priceless. It's up on the site. Take a listen. You'll learn some things they just don't teach you in college. They just don't teach you anywhere. And this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our weekly First Jobs segment, where we hear from famous and ordinary Americans about their very first job. And today's story comes from our own Alex Cortez, about the life story of a guy he once met in Charlottesville, Virginia, where he went to college, and I went to law school at Mr. Jefferson's school, the University of Virginia. By the way, a place where you can't quote Jefferson anymore, because it violates safe space rules and ordinances. And of course, this gentleman's very first job played. Derwood Chase is a guy who knows how to work. He doesn't go on vacations. No time. He's building up his investment business. For 17 years, you remember, I worked 70 hours a week and I brought my own lunch, so I'm here. You know, I'm not at lunch. Um, having fun with some client or prospect or something. I didn't know any better. I mean, I just wasn't very sociable, I guess. So Claude Jessup, who I'd, you know, I'd send him a sales letter or two or three, and and finally he calls me up. said, I've got a research project I think you might be interested in. Let's go to lunch. Well, I'm sitting here with this, my lunchbox, and I said, well, gee, um, I already brought my sandwiches. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, I guess, I don't know. I don't think the guy was a billionaire, but let's say he was worth $100 million. And I'm telling him we can't go to lunch because I have my lunch, my sandwiches. That is so damn stupid, I can't even believe it. But he was local, you know, and he dealt with bus drivers and so on and so forth. And he said, oh, well... Bring your sandwiches down here, and I'll send out for lunch. We can have lunch here right here in my office. And you don't run into that sort of businessman in, in New York, etc. Derwood eventually learned that he couldn't let a sandwich get in the way of getting a new client. But what to do about the sandwich in those cases? My wife thought if I was not going to eat my sandwiches that I ought to sell them to somebody, sell my lunch to somebody. This is my first wife, by the way. <laughs> but some of the people were going out, you know, getting a sandwich somewhere. And so I just remember saying, well, listen, I'm, I've been invited out to lunch or something rather. Um, go ahead and eat, eat my lunch. And uh, if you think it was worth anything, just, just put the coins in the box so I can give, give them to Marion when I get home. But, 
you know, when you're first struggling and losing money with your first three clients or something or other, <laughs> while you're trying to make ends meet. And where did Derwood learn to be thrifty and work hard? Like many folks, it was his very first job, working on a farm, his dad's farm. You know, whatever jobs there were on the farm, that's just a gopher. I think in terms of the work ethic, I got that in spades. You know, my father had that, you know, like all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, but that didn't keep him from raising me on an all work and no play track. Derwood's father paid him $1 for a whole day, and he said it was more than Derwood deserved. A dollar a day, well, that was big money. But the dollar was, you know, you could get a steak dinner for, I, I don't remember getting a steak dinner anywhere, but I think, I think I heard people talking about getting a steak dinner for 25 cents or something or other. And more than anything, working for his dad on the farm gave Derwood this. I had a lot of uh, dialogue with my father while I'm painting one side of the fence and he's painting the other. And sometimes I'm just handing him the tools when he was fixing the car or something rather, you know. But that, you know, was really a great relationship, even though it was work-related. But then, like all good things, it came to an end. I got into a nest of yellow jackets, and they are really mean when they sting you. After that, I told my father I was going to try to go to jo- town and find a job. Durwood went to the nearby University of Virginia, my alma mater. Now at the big school, he asked his dad for a bigger allowance. When I went in to talk to my dad about an allowance, he said, Well, son... If you get the tiniest part-time job, you'll be making much more money than I'm willing to give you as an allowance. So I'm discontinuing entirely. And that was really very helpful in terms of my part-time jobs in in college. Necessity is the mother of invention. I don't think I would have been anywhere near as open to working. He at first worked for free at the student newspaper, the Cavalier Daily, until... I was on the sports staff, and then because I just happened to be in the booth next to these guys that I had just seen in the Cavalier Daily office, and they had were talking about the checks that they'd gotten, and I overheard them, so I, I got up and asked them, uh, weren't you just in the Cavalier Daily office? Yeah. Well, what, what is this about the checks? Oh, we're on the advertising staff, and they're paying you 10% commission uh, on the ads that you bring in. And so I finished my walnut Sunday. I switched to hot fudge Sunday since then, by the way. But anyhow, I went right in and resigned from the sports staff and joined the advertising staff. Durwood would earn $3,000 in advertising commissions in a single year. That's over $27,000 today for part-time work while he was a student. It makes it seem easy, and getting some accounts were easy. But there were others like that Greek tavern owner who were not. I can remember sitting and waiting for damn near an hour. It taught him patience. Patience he'd need growing his investment firm. Can you imagine having a one-room office and having a retired person who'd been 
president and chairman of Emerson Electric come in. I don't know how I even talked him into coming down and even considering our services, but I could just see that guy looking from one corner of the ceiling to the other corner of the ceiling and thinking to himself, if this is all it is, this guy couldn't possibly be competent. <laughs> Derwood Chase now manages more than $500 million for a select group of investors. Only in America. Great job, Alex. Great story. Derwood Chase, first jobs. This is Our American Story, and we love these jobs. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Post yours. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love music here on the show, and we love history. And that's why this is our favorite segment, and Jesse brings us This Week in Music History. This Week in Music History, 1990, the great Stevie Ray Vaughan died tragically when the helicopter he was riding in crashed in East Troy, Wisconsin. Vaughan and three stage crew members left a performance on Eric Clapton's tour in Wisconsin. Were killed when their chopper went down before dawn. Stevie Ray Vaughan was 35 years old. Vaughan's helicopter apparently lost its bearings in heavy fog and crashed into a man-made ski hill. An annual motorcycle ride-in concert in Dallas, Texas, benefits the Stevie Ray Vaughan Memorial Scholarship Fund. City of Austin erected the Stevie Ray Vaughan Memorial statue at the Auditorium Shores on Lady Bird Lake, the site of a number of his concerts. It has become one of the city's most popular tourist attractions. And in 1991, Pearl Jam releases their debut album, 10. It got off to a slow start, but eventually reached number two on Billboard 200 by late 1992. Recorded and released before Nirvana's Nevermind, 10 was the arrival of grunge alt-rock into mainstream. It remains Pearl Jam's most successful album, having sold 10 million copies by the year 2013. Tammy Wynette recorded Stand By Your Man at Columbia Recording Studios in Nashville after an idea that came from producer Barry Sherrill. Sometimes it's hard to be a woman. Wynette and Cheryl then completed recording the song in just 15 minutes. Give them all your love to just one man. You'll have bad times 
and he'll have good time doing things that you don't understand. But if you love him, you'll forgive him, even though he's hard to understand. successful record of Wynette's career and is one of the most covered songs in the history of country music. The song reached number one on the U.S. country charts in late 1968 for three weeks. Here's Tammy Wynette talking about the controversy surrounding the song at the time of its release. Some of the the women objected to, I think, the part where it said, uh, if you love him, you'll forgive him. After all, he's just a man. They said that was the old double standard. Well, gosh, I didn't have anything like that in mind at all when I wrote it, because I have five girls, and I by no means would ever write anything <laughs> that would belittle any of my girls. But I thought it was just a pretty love song, and that's all I intended. Born this week in music history, 1965, country singer-songwriter Shania Twain. Her 1997 album, Come On Over, became the best-selling album of all time by a female musician in any genre, and the best-selling country album of all time, selling more than 40 million copies worldwide. You thought they were pretty smart But you've got being right down to an art You think you're a genius, you drive me up the wall You're a regular original, know-it-all is one of the most commercially successful artists of all time, having sold over 80 million albums. That don't impress me much. Here's Shania talking about her transition from obscurity into fame. I was so ready. By the time I was really what you would consider famous, I was 30. I wasn't young. I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't have any recording experience. I didn't have any fame experience. But I'd spent my whole childhood and all of that, all of my 20s, working toward it. I had a whole stash of songs. And in 1964, this week in music history, Roy Orbson's Pretty Woman was released in the U.S. It went on to reach number one four weeks later. Here's a rare interview from a young Roy Orbson from 1965. About how many records have you sold so far? I <clears throat> had a rough count at 15 million. That was about a year ago, I guess. Uh, maybe 18 million by now. 
Uh, you're well on the way to making your first million dollars, I believe. Yes, yeah. I'm, uh, I've passed it, in fact. Uh, of course, that's on paper, you know. They haven't given me the money yet, but... Uh Everything looks real good. In the 1970, This Week in Music History, Edwin Starr started a three-week run at number one on the U.S. Singles Chart with... War. <laughs> yeah. What is it good for? Absolutely. Nothing. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He won a Grammy nomination in 1971 for Best R&B Male Vocal, and in 1999, Starr's recording of the song was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. 1987. This week in music history, Rick Astley's debut hit, Never Gonna Give You Up, started a five-week run at number one on the UK singles chart. It became the biggest-selling single of 1987, eventually topping the charts in 25 countries, including the United States and West Germany. The music video for the song has, of course, become the basis for the Rick-rolling internet meme. Never gonna give you up, never gonna let you down. And in 2013, this week in music history, a 96-year-old man who wrote a song for his late wife made the U.S. iTunes Top 10 alongside Katy Perry and Lady Gaga. That was a wonderful 75 years that I just often think that kind of unreal, dreaming or something, but but uh, it was real. That's all I can say, uh, real. He submitted his handwritten lyrics by mail, although the contest was online only. The organizers of the competition were so moved that they put the words to music. Oh, sweet Lorraine, I wish we could do all the good times over again. Oh, sweet Lorraine, life only goes around once, but never again. Oh, sweet Lorraine. I wish we could do all the good times over again The good times, the good times, the good times All over again, the good times This Week in Music History, 2013, Oh Sweet Lorraine was number seven. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. But the memories always linger on
is Our American Stories, and we're back with one of our favorite topics, Random Acts of Kindness. You can find all sorts of these uplifting stories at randomactsofkindness.org. It's an inspiring resource and a great one to share with friends, with family, with kids, because in the end, the media wants one thing. It wants blood, it wants tragedy, and it wants, it wants controversy in the end. If it bleeds, it leads. Um, but we think differently here on Our American Stories. And today also, as a part of National Police Week, we want to focus on cops and their random acts of kindness because too often we hear about extreme stories, either extreme bravery, uh, a cop doing something heroic uh, and saving a life, and we hear about some of the bad things periodically that cops do. But the great middle, the great majority of the of wonderful things cops do every day that no one talks about, no one writes about, no one reads about, that's what we want to focus on here. But first, we wanted to share a few stories before we bring on Houston Police Department Union President Ray Hunt. Let's start first with a story about a cop, a father, and a trip to Walmart in Westland, Michigan. You may remember hearing a story just like this a few weeks back, but that was a different officer halfway across the country, which just goes to show the overall character of Americans, men in blue and women. When Levante Dell was pulled over in his Impala Monday afternoon on Warren Avenue, he thought, oh no. When he hit the lights, that's I did what everybody pretty much does when they get pulled over, heart drop, went to my stomach. Dell figured it was because of his tinted windows, and he was right. But when Westland police officer Joshua Scaglioni walked up to the car, he saw something else. Dell's three-year-old daughter, Lauren, was not in a car seat. I asked him, why is she in there without a car seat? It's unsafe. And he teared up a little bit, explained to me that he's going through some tough times. When he asked me, do I mind stepping out the car? I, <laughs> I was really expecting the worst. But that's when something really great happened. He actually talked to me. He asked me what was going on. And I, I broke everything down to him, like why I'm in the position that I'm in and why money is tight. I related to it. I related to the fact that I've been in that situation before. And I said, you know, to myself, this is a perfect opportunity for me to help this guy. So this rookie officer didn't give Dell a ticket. Instead, he told him to follow him to Walmart. And as they walked through the aisles heading for the car seat section, Dell says he didn't feel like he was with someone he'd just met. You would have thought we was best friends, like we knew each other for a while because it wasn't an awkward silence. We was talking the whole way. I learned about him. He learned about me. He seems like the blue-collar, hard-working guy, uh, and he's doing his best he can for his family. And then another surprise. Officer Scaglioni reached into his own pocket and bought this car seat for Dell's daughter. I thank him from the bottom of my heart. Dell says they parted ways before he realized he didn't get Officer Scaglioni's name. That's one of the reasons he posted the story on Facebook, and it has since gone viral. I feel he should get the recognition that he that he deserves, like everybody should know what he did. So now little Lauren has her car seat. And her father has a newfound appreciation for police. Don't judge a book by its cover, man. You would be surprised what come out of it. It wasn't my intention. I never thought that this was going to happen. Never thought that I'd be talking to you, <laughs> but I am. And I, I really hope that this uh, has changed a lot of people's perception on us. Officer Scaglioni, well, everybody now knows and, well, there are so many more stories like it. We want to bring you another one from a very different state, a very different season. This one, Bethel Park, Pennsylvania, just south of Pittsburgh. But the spirit, identical. It was an act of kindness after an emergency situation. Police helping a man who had just suffered a heart attack and then set out to finish the job he had started. 
The post has been viewed thousands of times with the hashtag people helping people. It may not seem like much, a couple of officers with shovels in their hands, but it was much more than that. It was, it was just, a, just something we, you know, police officers do every day. It was just somebody happened to just take a picture and notice it this time. It was here along Stonewood Drive in Bethel Park where the 75-year-old man went out to clear the driveway after the first round of snow yesterday morning, but he collapsed. Suffering a heart attack. We hooked up an AED and uh, Officer Gorman started doing compressions. And while he was doing that, the paramedics then arrived and they and they took over. With the medics rushing the man to the hospital, who was at that point now conscious and speaking, his wife following behind the ambulance, the three officers left at the house. Officers Minson, Beer, and Gorman picked up the tools left behind and got to work. I suggested, why don't we finish the driveway? And they're like. Yeah, let's do it. We grabbed some shovels and a broom and finished shoveling the driveway along with a neighbor across the street actually jumped in and, and helped us too. It was a simple act of kindness, says neighbor Sarah Chikis, but it did not go unnoticed. To see that, you know, there are good police officers out there and who are willing to step up and go above and beyond who, you know, didn't have to do that at all, but, you know, took the time to, you know, out of their day to, t to help her and to help, you know, the family in whole was a great thing to see. The picture, posted on Bethel Park Police's Facebook page, has hundreds of comments. Officer Minson says it's amazing to see the response, but what they did was not out of the ordinary. But if it wasn't for that, you know, most people would know officers do stuff like that every day. Indeed. And this one and the last one, and then we'll be joined again by Houston Police Department Union President Ray Hunt. This one starts off so normally. But soon, as you'll see, it will deeply impact one young man, this one from San Diego, California. 36-year-old officer Jeremy Henwood ordering his fast food dinner inside a City Heights McDonald's. It's seemingly ordinary surveillance video except for what happens next. Watches the officer is approached by a young boy. I was looking around like, how am I do this? How am I going to do this? And then I went up to him and just asked him. 13-year-old Davian Tinsley needed 10 cents. I just seen him a tall officer and he looks pretty nice. So he approached the officer and asked him, to which Henwood replied, What is the money for? And I said cookies. And then he said, okay, I'll buy them for you. The video carries the haunting reality of a nightmare waiting literally around the corner. Officer Henwood was shot and killed by a shotgun blast, the McDonald's bag unopened in the back seat. Wow, that's amazing, huh? Today, Davian and his dad watched the video for the first time, their eyes glued to a scene they'll never forget. Character is, what you doing when nobody's around with yourself? How you acting when nobody's around? Friends of Henwood say this final act of kindness caught on tape is how he lived. He was like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, an NBA star. He said, that takes hard work. For Davian, those words are now part of who he is. He tells me to work hard, I'm going to work hard. Jerry Tinsley aims to make sure his son follows through on that promise. We have all have role models, and I'm make this um, this officer, this fallen soldier, out of his role model. You know, every day he go to school, he gonna remember his fallen officer because he was the last person who talked to this this man. A man who served his country and community until the day he died. The proof is on video and in the untold future of a 13-year-old boy. And that's what we're doing today, National. Police Week, and also Random Acts of Kindness. And this officer, Jeremy Henwood, he had served with San Diego PD for four years, and he was also a captain in the United States United States Marine Corps. And boy, is there a lot of that crossover, men who've served their country 
and women who've served their country, and then they want to come back and just continue serving. And they almost don't feel comfortable doing anything else, going into harm's way and just you know, putting themselves between bad forces and good forces. And this is such a tragic and senseless loss, but we can celebrate the character of this man uh, who never thought twice about helping out even a kid who needed a dime for some cookies. And uh, just remarkable storytelling. When we come back, Houston PD Union President Ray Hunt. This is Our American Stories. And again, randomactsofkindness.org is where you can find so much of this great work. And here at Our American Stories, you want controversy, you want people screaming and yelling at each other, you got the wrong station. But if you want great stories, and by the way, great commencement addresses all month this month, General Pete Paces at the Citadel. Take a listen. Put your family around the radio when you listen to it because you're going to learn from a great man what sacrifice looks like, what service looks like, and what leadership sounds like. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. When we come back, Ray Hunt. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to do random acts of kindness. We do it all year long. But we also want to celebrate National Police Week, which is this week, and all the men and women in blue who put themselves in harm's way. And we wanted to be joined by, and are joined by, Houston Police Department Union President Ray Hunt. Ray, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. You know, Ray, you know, people tend to hear about uh, things that happen when police encounter civilians in the media only through ex- what I call extreme events or outliers. Uh, talk about how this, how the, the media coverage affects the morale of ordinary cops on the beat uh, and in the street. You know, uh, the, the bad things that, that they want to show in the media all obviously sells newspapers and, and sells uh, ads on TV and radio, but uh, the, 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 the morale that, that does to police officers whenever they see these things, they realize that they're picking out that small segment of the, of the police community that, uh, that aren't doing the right thing every day, all the time. And rarely do you see these acts of kindness taking place. But let me just tell you, the things that I just heard that you were reporting, those things happen hundreds of times a day, if not thousands of times a day across this nation. Very similar incidents happen just like that here in Houston. And I assure you that it happens at all police departments across this country. Officers don't call the media and say, hey, let me tell you about this. Just like I didn't call y'all and ask y'all to be here today. Right. You y'all bet. contacted us. We, we, we police officers aren't going to go out there and pat themselves on the back and say, hey, look what I did. That's not what we're supposed to do. The individual that was shot after he bought the kids some cookies, we probably would have never found out about that incident had he not been killed because that's when they went back to trace his steps to find out what happened prior to this. But those things happen all the time. 
You bet. And in, and in Houston, look, there are there are forces that are under the lens even more because some neighborhoods are tougher to patrol than others. And the contact with civilians can sometimes be tougher. Um, an ordinary cop's life in a suburb and an ordinary cop's life in a, in a big city are very different. Three of my best friends uh, went through law school and then went to the FBI, and they are brothers, and the half of the other family are NYPD. And I've walked in those shoes. I've taken rides in those cars. And my goodness, I didn't realize, sir, that every time a cop steps into a domestic dispute, every time he answers a call, even a pullover, a car pulled over, I'd never seen it from the cop's point of view before. I had always seen it from the, from the I would call it the suspect's point of view, because when I would get pulled over, I'd be sitting there going, oh, what did I do? What's going to happen to me? Damn it. Um, I wasn't thinking, oh, good, cheerio, I'm just getting pulled over. Uh, do you think it would benefit more Americans if they were to walk in the shoes of an officer for a day? No doubt, no doubt about it. I, I trained officers for 15 years on night shift, and and I used to tell rookie officers that when you're walking up to a car, if your if your heart doesn't start beating a little bit faster than it did before you stop that vehicle, you probably should leave this job. You never know what you're about to encounter, and people automatically assume that when an officer walks up to that car, that they're calm, cool, and collected. That officer has no idea what they're about to encounter. That officer has no idea if that simple traffic stop is about to turn into a deadly short force situation. Um, that officer has no idea when that silent 911 comes from that house, whether somebody's just mistakenly dialed 911 trying to do it, do an international operator, or if someone's just pointing a gun at somebody in that house and is about to kill them. All of those things have to happen, and, and it's an extremely dangerous job. But most officers do this job because they want to help people, and that's where these random acts of kindness come from. From. The officers have big hearts, and when they see somebody hurting, they want to try to help that person, especially when there's children involved. And you're so right. And just as I have never met a soldier who toots his own horn, and we yeah. learn, and we're we're coming up on Memorial Day and D Day, and if you remember when Stephen Ambrose finally wrote Band of Brothers, he was finally able to crack the code and get these men to talk about their acts of heroism and bravery, and they didn't want to do it. They didn't want to do it because they just said, look, I was doing what I was supposed to do. And by the way, the real brave people are the dead ones. And so yep. there's a different sort of honor code with, with these guys who serve. But if you could, because you're a representative of these men and women, tell us a couple of the stories that you know of in your own police force. Share, with, share a few of those with our audience if you could. Well, the story with the car seat uh, reminded me of a situation that, that we had here in Houston. One of our local reporters, who we have a great relationship with, had encountered a, a lady with some kids in a hotel room. It was around Christmas time. She had no gifts. She contacted us and said, you know, is there any way you all might be able to get some gifts over here? We have a Blue Santa program. So we took gifts over to the hotel room, gave her a business card, and said, if you need anything while you're here in Houston, give us a call. The very next day, she called, and she was on a traffic stop, and one of our officers had stopped her because her child was not in a car seat, and she had an expired uh, inspection sticker. Officer talks to her, and he goes back to start writing the ticket, and she makes a phone call, and she's crying, and she tells us, she said, I just got stopped by this officer for this, this, and this. So when the officer comes back, he's the, uh, our officer here at the union said, would you put the officer on the phone? So he gets on the phone, and, and we tell him that, hey, we just kind of adopted this family. They're really going through some tough times. We took them gifts, et cetera, et cetera. That sergeant took her over to Walmart 
to buy her a car seat for that child and told her that she needed to get an inspection sticker. She said she couldn't because one of her front tires was bald. He took her back over to the Walmart in the back to, to buy her a tire. Walmart manager found out about it, and he said, you know what, that other front tire looks bad. I'm going to pay for that one. So this sergeant not only bought her a car seat and a tire, but also got her got her on the road. And and those kind of things happen all the time uh, that, that don't get reported. Yeah, and you know, my dear friend, and his name is Carl Bazin, and we always called him the Amazing Bazin because he had this incredible law degree. He could have done anything in the world, made all kinds of money, and, well, he just wanted to serve the public through the FBI. And his father and his two brothers, my goodness, one was a transit cop, two were detectives, and I just loved hanging out with these men. And, again, so self-effacing. The things they did every day in the neighborhoods were wonderful. I wanted to talk a little about you. You've been a, 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 in, in the force since 1989, a UT Austin graduate. What's day-to-day policing life like? What's the life like? What's an ordinary day like in the life of a cop? It's never boring. Um, you never know whenever you put that uniform on and go out there for that shift what you're going to encounter. Uh, it's a very rewarding career. Um, it can be it can be morale uh, lowering whenever you see certain things on TV, but most of the time you feel like you're doing a good job and you you feel good about the job that you're doing. And and most officers have that feeling. Um, our officers enjoy being police officers. We're blessed to have a community that supports us. Ninety five percent of all races in our community support the police. We're a very diverse police department with 51% minority. We've got a command staff that reflects the makeup of our community. And for all those things, I believe, are the reasons that, that we don't have the riots in Houston, Texas, that other cities have whenever, whenever things explode. But uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great job, a rewarding job, can be a fun job, but it's also very dangerous, and we also understand that. We've had 113 Houston police officers been killed in the line of duty since the inception of the Houston Police Department, and that's 113 too many. It is. And there are, by the way, 5,300 officers in the Houston PD, and they police 2.2 million people and cover, and Houston is such a big city, but I had no idea it was this big, 600 square miles. And, you know, part of good policing is the relationships police have with the community. Talk a bit about that and where we've come over the last 20, 30, 40 years as it relates to relationships between the people the police are patrolling and protecting and those people themselves, the relationships. Hey, if you're not if you're not a police department that's engaged with the community, you're a police department that's going to have problems. Um, our our union does everything they can. We we rent out ice cream trucks and go into low income areas and have our officers in uniform giving out those ice creams. We do teddy bears in the backs of police cars and give those out. We do the junior police stickers. We do all those things because we want those young people in our community to know, especially the young people, that when they need a police officer, they can trust that person who's walking up there who's wearing the badge. And and as I say, you have 5% of all races that don't like the police and are not going to ever like the police, but all races support the police as far as if they if they hear a shooting in the neighborhood, they're still picking up that phone and dialing 911. But you have to be engaged in the community. I meet every two weeks with a group of black ministers here at the Houston Police Officers Union. I go through each one of our deadly encounters with them. I read them the synopsis that our attorney did. I pull back the curtain, basically, at the Houston Police Department and show them what's going on, and they tell me what's going on in the community. And when I need these persons to support me, I pick up the phone, and they're standing there behind 
behind me supporting me because they know that we are being transparent and we're doing the right thing at the Houston Police Department, and they want to be part of that team. We work a lot with our clergy here in Houston. We have a police and clergy alliance that we call it, PACA, that are always there for us when they need us. And we are just very blessed in Houston to have the relationship with our community that we have. Well, that's great. And you've uh, enlisted... Even with the activists. I have cell phone numbers of the activists, and I'll even contact them and, and say, hey, look, don't jump off on this case because let me tell you what's going on here. We we don't want fuel being added to fires in Houston, Texas. You bet. And it's important to talk to people who disagree with you. And I'm, I'm so glad that you do that. That shows strength. And again, that shows that word you repeated over and over again, which is transparency. Transparency. Houston PD Union President Ray Hunt, thank you so much for all you do, all the men and women in your force do, all that men and women in blue do across this country. This is National Police Week. And thanks for joining us. Thanks for contacting us. We appreciate it. Bye-bye. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We combine two segments this time, random acts of kindness and our affection for anyone who puts on a uniform and gets between us and the forces of chaos and evil. And always be thinking about what their lives are like, what it's like to wake up every day, strap on a gun, kiss your husband or wife goodbye, and wonder what will happen at the end of the day, not like most of our jobs. More after these messages. Thank you.